All right, all right. So it's about that time. So anybody want to shout out and answer? What's that miraculous you want to see? Jesus coming back. That'd be a, a miracle, right? Absolutely. What? A nation revived? Not necessarily this one, but just a nation. This one, right? Okay, good. Okay, a revival here? Okay. Yeah. All right, specific revival in Nacogdoches. Okay. Family healing. Okay. All right. I haven't been asking y'all why. Why do you want to, wait, no, go ahead. I see something about to holler something out. Physical healing. All right, so I, I should have been asking why all along. I apologize. So why do, why do you want to see physical healing? A very visible example of God's power. Okay, all right, awesome. Anyone else? More understanding in the church. What is that? Can you expand, expand on that? Okay, all right, so you want healing in our divisions. Okay, all right. And the answer to that is why? Because biblical. Okay. Yeah, what, anybody, anybody else? Yeah, Aaron. What? Your mom healed of cancer. Okay. And uh, I assume you want that because that would be awesome. That would be great. Anybody else? Yeah. For your dad to become a believer. I've actually got several family members here in the back, and I asked them during the time, and like quite a few of them like wanted their family to be saved. So anybody else feeling that way? Was that... That's some of them? All right. Okay. Anyone else? All right. Unity? All right. Kind of like, like that one? Yeah. Absolutely. Anything else? Yeah. What, gone? Like, uh, like personal? Like, uh, like, yeah, depression? Okay. Why do you say that? All right. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into uh, the word. So we are, we're in Mark. Um, and I asked you about miracles because we're going to be looking at two different uh, miracles and kind of two different falling points that happen. So um, I'm actually, so we're in Mark chapter 7, uh, but I'm actually going to read Isaiah 35, and that's on page uh, 586 if you've, got the, if you've got the Pew Bible. I'm going to read that real quick. I'm going to read that because it's an expectation of the Messiah, expectation of the Messiah and what he's going to do. I'll wait just a, a second for y'all to get there. Isaiah 35, page 586 in your pew Bible. 595? I wrote it down wrong. 595. I'm human. Okay? Real human. Okay. Let me read that. Isaiah uh, 35. The wilderness uh, in the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, 
in streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the hot jaws of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So a couple of things I want to point your attention to. The first one, um, in verse 2, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. So um, Carmel is a mountain, and the Jews are very used to like a mountain being where God would come and visit them. You think of Moses getting the Ten Commandments. That all happened on a mountain. Everyone's at the base of the mountain, terrified of God who's on the mountain. And they're like, Moses, you go up and talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. And so that's what they're kind of used to. Now, Sharon is different, though. Sharon is a plain. The plains, the meadows, it's a massive plain. And so that is not normal for God to be present there. So there's this expectation of God not just being on the mountain like he used to, but actually being in the plains. And then we see this healing happening amongst the people. Their limbs, their eyes, they can walk now. There's this expectation. And this is Jesus. And this is the passage that we're about to look to. We're about to look at a passage where, uh, where a deaf person and a mute, a mute person, uh, they're going to be healed. And this is part of it. So they have this expectation of someone who's going to be out there with them. You know, we talked about, um, about how these miracles we've seen have just superseded Moses, where uh, they, you know, have manna, and Jesus just had, is just making bread, just out of nothing. And then, um, you know, Moses split the sea, and, and Jesus is just walking on top of it. And then even here, we see an expectation that, that God will come down and be amongst his people, not just up on high, um, distant from them. And Jesus is there. Jesus is walking around these people. He's with them constantly, and that's what we see. And there is a clear expectation that they have of the Messiah to be healing people of these things. And that's what we're going to look at, uh, which is Mark chapter 7. Go ahead, turn to Mark chapter 7, verse 31, which is the page in your pew is 843. That's what I had, Nathan. It might not be wrong. Did you double check for me? It's 843? Good deal. Mark 7. So we're actually, I've got a lot of stuff to, to cover. I'm going to try and be brief. The way Romans laid this out, it's very broad. I like that. Um, so I won't have time to get deep into everything, but try to hit things with a broad stroke. And so we're talking about miracles. The first part of the um, thing I want to talk about tonight with miracles um, is something that we do. There are two different sides we kind of follow along with miracles. And the first is that we pursue miracles for the wrong reasons. We pursue them for the wrong reasons. That's what we're going to look at. Um, and this one particularly is we are chasing the miraculous instead of chasing God. I want you to look at these people. Um, so 731, and I'm going to read 31 to the end of the chapter. Uh, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. It's like a, uh, it's going to be mostly Gentiles. There'll be some Jewish people, but it's mostly Gentiles there. Uh, verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf 
and had a speech impediment, and they begged, they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, y'all, y'all bear with me, I'm going to try and say this, Ephaphatha, that's as good as it gets for me, uh, that is to be opened. Uh, verse 35, and his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more, they, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. These people are pumped. These people are pumped. That was my bad. Um, I don't think I did that. So my emphasis I wanna, uh, on this section, on this section, we see people who are trying to, to see Jesus' miracles, and they brought one, some, some, uh, someone to him, and they're begging him. It's like Jesus kind of almost doesn't want to do it, it sounds like. He doesn't, we don't really see that, but they have to beg him and say, saying, hey, Jesus, here it is. They're pleading and begging with him, and they want to see it. And Jesus doesn't, God doesn't always do things the way that we want, the way that we expect. And so imagine if, like, we're here, and you're like, oh, this person needs to be healed. Pray for him, Joe. And then I'm like, nah, I'm going to go over in that little room there. And then uh, I'll do it there. You'd all be like, oh, we wanted to see a mirror. We wanted to see this. Then we came back out. You'd probably be a little disappointed, but you'd still be, you didn't get to see it, but you'd be pumped. You'd be like, yes, this person is healed. This is awesome. And the second thing I want to point out is Jesus is humble. Jesus isn't, uh, he, he says, please, you know, don't. He's like begging them almost, do not, do not tell people. And they're just like, no, nah, I got to tell everybody. I mean, it's just, if I, if I did that, if I prayed for someone over here, said, hey, they're healed. And I'm like, don't tell anyone. You'd be like, I've snapped it to everyone. It's too late. It's got a, it's got a, it's got a million retweets and two million likes. So not everyone's retweeting, but it's just, you know, people, you know, it'd be everywhere. You'd want to tell everyone. I wouldn't blame you. I wouldn't blame you at all. But my point is, <laughs> I hear John laughing somewhere. <laughs> so distinct. I'm sorry. You got me distracted, John. No more laughing. Um, uh, my point is that Jesus has done something very differently than what they want. They wanted to see this happen, and they didn't. And it's kind of awkward if you think. It's one of why Jesus' awkward miracles. Like he's got his fingers in this guy's ear, and he's spitting. And it's like, what is it? how did this happen? Did he, like, spit in his hand, give him a wet willy? What, what happened? Like, did, did he touch his tongue? Like, and it's just kind of weird. Like, where other times he's just, like, touched people, or they'd even touched him. He didn't even know. Remember the woman who had the, the bleeding? And he, she t- he didn't even know she's there. Like, why is he doing it this way? Let me tell you, I have no idea. I have no idea what's going on, but he did it in a weird way. He chose to. He doesn't do things the way we expect. And he did it privately. Maybe that's why he did it privately, um, to how weird it was. But it was different. And he kept things from them. Um, and he, it just really wasn't his time. Um, and I, let me tell you, I just, part of me just doesn't understand. If I could do that, like I'd be doing it left and right. You know, I'd be going to the hospital, like room after room. What have you got? Gallbladder surgery? You just got removed? Boom, you got your gallbladder back. Like, just like that. Like healing left and right. And then I just hang out in front of the hospital. What do you got? A broken arm? You going in? Boom, no, you're good. You know, and I just, that's what I would be doing left and right. I mean, I, if I was, I was going to say, if I was Jesus, that's, that's what I would think. But it's just not the way he does it. It's not what, it maybe isn't even his purpose. I'm not sure. Um, but he does things differently. He heals differently. Um, and he's not all about it, you know, because I'm telling you, if I could do that, I would just left and right, everyone, bring them all. You know, I wouldn't hide from you. You wouldn't have to beg me. 
Um, and I think it would be the same for you if you could do something like that. Uh, but he chooses to do things differently. And too often we fall on this side uh, where we are chasing after seeing an experience, uh, having something powerful happen, as opposed to actually pursuing Jesus. Um, I don't know if that's a huge thing here. It was back, uh, I was going to say back home for me, back at when I was in California, in San Francisco, the last ministry I was at, there were people left and right just searching for, like, oh, I'm looking for an experience. I want to feel the power of God. And they were constantly kind of down because they didn't feel something. They didn't experience something amazing when they had. They want to keep chasing after it. Um, and it was an issue. And we can't do that with the miraculous. We've got to cho- choose to pursue Jesus, not to choose choose uh, follow after, you know, a feeling, not following after just something miraculous for the sake of seeing it. Um, you want something behind it. So that's kind of why I asked you why as well. Like, what's your motive behind it? Because, oh, that's cool. That'd be cool to see. And like, you know, it doesn't mean you're necessarily in some terrible place, but what, you want to check yourself. You know, you want to pursue Jesus, not pursue power, not pursue the miraculous. You want to pursue Jesus. And if you pursue Jesus, you, you will see those things. You will. You will see the miraculous. So, I've got to keep rolling because we've got, we've got a lot more to do. So the other side, the other side of this, of the miraculous is doubt, is doubt. Or this is going to be a little bit of a bigger section. I'm going to start in chapter 8, verse 1 through 21, okay? Actually, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, uh, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to him, I have compassion on the crowd because they had been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And they took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them. And gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. Verse 7. And they had a a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. I'm actually going to stop there. I've changed my mind. I'm not going to keep reading. We're going to stop at this section and talk for a bit. We'll read the rest of the section and talk about it later. So, so here we are. Um, if you're thinking, didn't something like this just happen? Is this like a duplicate or is this like another section? It's actually just happened. Turn your page over. If you turn your page over, look at, uh, where are we at? Like Mark 6. Look at, look at verse 30 above the headline. It should be like a little bold little caption. It says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Y'all have something like that? Yeah? Okay. Because he did. He feeds 5,000 people. And I don't really know the timeline. It could have been a few days. could have been a couple weeks. Um, here they are again. It's, a bit of a, it's like slightly smaller. Still a lot of people, 4,000. But for some reason, the disciples are like, how are we going to feed them? What are we going to do? You know, you know how is this going to happen? I mean, imagine, again, we're here. And I've got Doritos, and I'm just like making them just cool ranch and nacho cheese and, you know, or or whatever food. And then next week we come here, and you're like, he's only got one bag of Doritos. What are we going to do? You know, 
you'd just be like, well, he's probably going to make more Doritos. Um, It's going to happen. And yet, look at what they say. Look at what they say. Uh, Verse 4 of chapter 8. His disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Like, they're just bewildered. They're like, I don't know how you're going to do it. You know, like they haven't just experienced like this ridiculous miracle of just magic bread popping out of nowhere. I don't know what that looked like. I want to know. Um, and so let me tell you something that, that happens, that happens to people in the midst of miracles. It is hard to recognize when you're in the midst of a miracle. I, I give the disciples that. Um, I give them that. It's actually very difficult to acknowledge when something miraculous is happening to you because it always isn't so, so simple and so obvious when you experience something. Um, let me tell you a couple stories. Uh, I got a couple good stories. So I used to work for a place called City Impact in the Tenderloin of San Francisco, really difficult neighborhood. Um, and we had a conference every, every year. Um, the year I got there was the start of like their big conference. They had had one the year before, but the executive director doesn't talk about it because it was like it failed. And so he's like, that one never happened. Um, so it was like our start of like our big conference, City Impact Conference. Um, like something like a thousand people were going to be there, uh, and we're going to have all these ministries feed thousands of people during the conference. The, the conference was like, you know, teaching and worship, but then we actually had stuff for people to do. The other half of the day would be like going out and serving in the in the neighborhood, and so we had to feed all these people. And we were pretty poor back then, and we didn't have much money. We didn't have much food; just what was donated. And Ralph, our donation guy, was like, when it came to like a week before. Um, the conference was supposed to happen. Ralph was like, I, I don't have the food. I've gotten all the donations I can from these, these grocery stores. I don't have enough, and we don't know what to do. And Chris, we're like, we're like praying, and Chris is like, I'm just going to buy some chicken on my credit. He's about to buy like three grand worth of chicken on his credit card, which he does not have money for. Um, and he is, he is like trying to like make this phone call with this company, and then Ralph gets a call from Trader Joe's. I don't know if any of you know Trader Joe's. One of my favorite grocery stores. We don't have it in Nacogdoches. Hurts my heart. Um, uh, Trader Joe's, they're all over. That's all the San Francisco people like. There's like a dozen of them. They call and they say, hey, we've got some meat we want to give you. Our freezer just turned off and on and we can't sell the food. So they've got a freezer full of food and the power goes off. So it's all still good. It's all still frozen. And it goes, I don't know how long it is. And then it comes back on. And the food's still good, but they're not legally allowed to sell it. And we're like, what? And it's like a trailer full of frozen food. It was so much food. And we were freaking out. We're like, yeah, this is awesome. Thank you, God. Thank you. And let me tell you, it didn't take long for it not to feel miraculous. Because guess who had to unload all that food? And we're like grumbling. We're like, oh, gosh, what are we going to do with all this food? And, you know, it had to be like that for some of the disciples. Like, imagine feeding 5,000 people. It's like, oh, my gosh, is everyone getting a loaf, Jesus? Just, you know, it's, just, it's difficult to recognize it. Uh, and then you even start to question it, too. It's like, what is he doing? Maybe he's just, like, really stretching those seven loaves. Maybe he's just really making it work, you know, just dicing it up just right for the people. Um, and you start to even question it. Let me tell you something. We, they had that conference every year. Next year, very similar situation where it was like, oh, we don't have the food. Ralph is like, I can't get it. I don't know what to do. Chris said, we're like praying, and Chris is like, I'm going to call him. Guess what happened? Guess. Yep. 
Absolutely. Trader Joe's is like, hey, uh, the, the freezer went out again. Uh, you, uh, you, you want to take this fruit from us? And we're like, yes, Jesus. Thank you. And let me tell you, and part of me doubts, it's like maybe Ralph sent like an intern to unplug their fridge. <laughs> like maybe, uh, you know, and it's like, or I'm like, it's like you'd kind of doubt it. Like this is a trick Ralph is playing. Something's happening. But no, we're up thousands of dollars. And like the best cuts too. It's not like some, you know, just dry chicken that Chris was going to buy. It's like the good stuff. Um, and we're able to feed everyone again. Now, let me tell you a real weird one, real weird one. You can believe this or not. I don't know if I do. Um, so I, uh, one of the things that's there in, in the, at the City Impact is a rescue mission. Uh, twice a day, we, have a, we had a service uh, where there's like worship and a sermonette, and uh, everyone gets food. Everyone gets fed, a meal that we've made. And uh, staff members would rotate uh, and do like, I had a sermon every single week. I, I was in charge for one of those, those evenings, uh, and... I do my thing, I come back, the food's not there, and Jimmy the cook comes in, and he has got two pitiful pans of fish. Uh, and we're like, Jimmy, this is not enough. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you. And I mean, it was pans like this, or two about like this. Um, there are about 80 people there, not including staff and volunteers. Many of the volunteers are actually uh, like homeless or that's going to be like their dinner as well, and so they need to eat. So it's probably about 90 to 100 people, and the fish could, that was there could f probably feed about 30. Probably feed about 30. Um, let me tell you something. There's a volunteer there named Andy. Uh, he is a nurse, uh, so he, he, he does his shift like uh, all, all morning and afternoon, then comes to the rescue mission and serves all evening. And then like when he's done serving there, he's like out on the street like preaching. Like, I'm, like, clocked out and going to the, a walk, for a walk or a movie, and I pass by, and I say, I'm like, you're preaching. Like, I'm done for the day. What are you doing? And, I mean, this guy is, like, if Jesus came back and wanted 12 disciples, Andy would be one of them. Um, and he starts praying for the food. And he's like, Lord, would you multiply this food? He starts praying for Jesus to multiply the food. And let me tell you, I don't know what happened. I started serving the food, and it's just like, one after another, after another, after another. I don't know what happened. I doubt it even telling you this story because I don't know. I don't know. But everybody got fed, all the people in the rescue mission and the staff and the volunteers, and there was a little bit left over, kind of similar to the story. And I, I'm like, what is it? And to this day, I still doubt it. I still doubt it. I'm like, what happened? Maybe I just stretched it just right, you know, or something. But that's what we do. In the middle of a miracle, we start to question God, and we don't know. We don't know if it's true or not, and we doubt, and we doubt if he can do things, and I, I still doubt what I probably experienced was a miracle. So you go home and do that, pray over your hot pockets or whatever. Uh, it'll, if, it ever, if you ever do experience multiplied food, it'll probably be because you're feeding a bunch of poor people, uh, and maybe you're thinking, well, I am poor, you know, but you're not. You're not. Only by American standards. Only, only an American can a poor person go to a, a state university. Um, anyways, I'm not going to preach about that. Um, about that. Let's, let's look at this. So, so, so I'll give them that. It's, it's difficult when you're in the midst of a miracle. Look at this next section, chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. This is Jesus. This is, so he's, he's fed all these people. He's gotten in a boat. He's left uh, the, Galilee, the uh, Gentile territory and come back to Jewish territory. Territory. He's, he's gone across the sea. Um, 
uh, and the, he sees the Pharisees, like basically first thing it seems. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and, and said, what does this gener- why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and he went to the other side. So, so Jesus has just gone and done all these miracles. And if you flip back through the pages, it's like miracle after miracle after miracle and many others that are not written down. There's just too many. And so he's, he's just well known throughout the region. And the Pharisees immediately go, give us a sign. Show us what you got. And it's like, he's like, are you kidding me? No. And then he gets back in the boat and leaves. It's like he came all the way across the sea to have that conversation and was like, I'm done. Mic check. And just, just, just dropped the mic and left. Um, and sailed right back. Now, that'd be awesome to do. Tell your enemies no and then sail away. Uh, uh, but they want a sign. And let me tell you something. This is more than a miracle. When they ask for a sign, they actually know that he's been doing some miraculous things. They want to know if he's from God. So this is like a deep, deep doubt. Where these people um, before were wanting to experience a miracle and they believe he's miraculous, they actually don't know if he's the Messiah either. They just want to eat his bread and see the miracles. But they believe he's got power of some sort. They don't know who. And then the Pharisees ask this pointed question, you know, show us a sign. Prove that you're from God because there's accusations that he's a magician. There's accusations that uh, this is a spoof, accusations that, uh, that he's a demon. And so they want, they want proof, and they have this incredible, powerful doubt. Now look at this word. Look at this word here uh, in verse 11. Uh, seeking from him a sign, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So they are testing him. And let me tell you, they actually don't want the answer to be yes. They're looking for something bad to happen. They're looking for him to fail. They are not speaking out of any kind of sincerity at all. They are looking for pure failure to test him. Let me ask you a question. Who else tests Jesus? You can say it. Who? Satan. That's right, Satan. Let me tell you, you do not want to be on board with the Pharisees or Satan. People who test Jesus, you do not want to do it. You do not want to do it. And he leaves. He has nothing to do with it. He's not going to prove a thing to him. Not a thing. Not a thing to those people. Um, now, I think the people in this room are my, are minority who, who are like these Pharisees, who are like, no, I need proof. I need proof that God exists. Um, otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here. There could be a few of you uh, who are that way. But if you are, I understand. I used to be that way as well. Um, and just because it, it looks this way doesn't mean that I condemn you or that Jesus condemns you. It just means you're wrong. And let me tell you, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. I know I have friends who have questions. They, want an- they demand answers from God, and they, they don't get them. They, you'll never get the answers. And if he does somehow answer that question, you'll just have another question for him, one after another after another. Um, and it's a hard heart is what that is, and you're never going to get the proof you're looking for. Jesus likes faith. God likes faith. He likes it. I don't know why, but he does. That's what he's looking for. You're looking for proof. He's not just going to do some sort of sign for you. He's not. Don't test him. It's a really bad idea. All right. Well, last section. Last section. Uh, verse 14. This is after the Pharisees. So he's gotten back in the boat. His, his disciples are with him. Now they had forgotten 
to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Which in different gospels, that can mean a few different things. Here, I believe that it means doubt. Could mean hypocrisy if you're in a different gospel. When he says the leaven of the Pharisees here, I believe he means doubt. Uh, Verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So they are in this boat. They've just seen this discussion with the Pharisees. So there's 13 of them sitting in a boat, and one of them's holding on to a piece of bread, a loaf of bread, which it's their job to have the food, not the rabbi's job to have the food. And they're going, what are we going to do? They have this one piece of bread. And they've just experienced him multiply food. And they're going, what are we going to do? How could he feed, you know, all these thousands of people, but he can't feed the 12 of us. It can't happen. You know, and there's this doubt. And he turns and he looks at them and he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And what do they do? They promptly go back to their discussion and go, what are they going to do about the bread? And he just rebukes the mess out of them. And it is, it is harsh and it is hard. And it is actually very hard for Jesus. These are the 12 people that he is closest to on the planet. They have been with him through everything, everything. And they are, they've, just, they've seen this twice. They've seen it twice. Thousands of people eating food that he multiplies. They're sitting there with food and going, are we going to eat? Even more than that, though, they're starting to listen to the Pharisees, which is they heard their little argument looking for a sign. Jesus says no, and they're starting to doubt. They're like, maybe he's not. Maybe he's not the Messiah. Maybe this is just, you know, some awesome stuff God, God is doing, but this isn't real. And they don't believe in him, and they definitely don't understand him. Next week, Roman's going to talk about how they claim to understand him. They call him Messiah, but they have no idea. They're worshiping a different Messiah. They have no idea who Jesus really is. That's going to be difficult to be surrounded by 12 closest people, and they have no idea who you actually really are. And they've really just been entertained by everything you, you do, but they still don't understand, and they still don't believe in you. They absolutely doubt you. And let me tell you something else about doubt. Where there is doubt, there is something much more severe, which is rejection of Jesus. Because doubt isn't just doubt. There's an inverse to that. And the inverse to that is a distrust of Jesus. It's a distrust of Jesus. And it's not okay. It's not okay for his disciples to do that. It's not okay for us to do that. The reason this, the end of the passage is the most difficult is because of how close to him they are kind of like us, kind of like how everyone in here, for the most part, everyone in here as a believer claims to be following Jesus, but we doubt him every week. It's pretty similar to this. Don't feel self-righteous at all as you read this and go, those, those, those disciples, because that's me, and that's you, doubting him every week. Let me tell you, every, every discussion I have with a student over this past semester as we talk and get serious and I, I try and pray for them, their concerns are 
all, all for the future. Absolute doubt for the future. Absolute worry. And that could be future for this semester. That could be future for after, particularly after graduation, about a job. And I get that. But we sang, good, good father. Is he? Do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe that? There's a there's like a prophet evangelist I like who's long gone, Leonard Ravenhill. He once said that Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. They sing them. And it's because of things like that. Where we sing, good, good father, it's who you are. And then you go and think you're never going to get a job. You go and think you're never going to find a spouse. Or whatever it is you're worried about. That's just random stuff in my head. It could be anything where you doubt and you don't believe. And you're saying that. You're saying you're no longer a slave to fear. Meanwhile, you're going to go home tonight and you're going to like put the shackles back on as you fret about relationships or whatever else you're worried about. This is us in the boat with Jesus, looking at him in the face and going, do you have enough for me? Are you going to be good enough? And that's the original lie from Satan. Is God good? Is he actually going to take care of you? We just sang it. We just sang it. Do you believe it? Let me tell you, there's nothing else that I have other than Jesus. There's nothing else. And it's, I understand doubts happen. Doubts happen, but every time I've got to lay it down. We have to lay it down at his feet because there's no one else to worship. There's no one else. There is nothing else. And there's nothing else that's going to save me. Nothing that I've done. All the poor people I've fed, all the sermons I've preached, all the things I've experienced, all the people I've cared for, none of it. It's worthless. The only thing I have is the blood of Jesus. The only thing. That's who my trust is in. That's who my faith is in. And I have zero doubt in the blood of Jesus. Every single person in this room is going to be knelt down before God in his presence. Every person you've ever met in your life will be there with you. Every person in existence before you were around and after you are gone will be there in that room. They'll be there, and you will bow the knee. And you will call Jesus Lord, whether you want to or not. And let me tell you something. The only thing I have in trust in is his blood. That's all I have, nothing else. Absolutely nothing. There never will be. No work that I do. No person that I lead to Jesus. No sermon that I preach. No amount of thousands and thousands of poor people to help. Those are all good things. Those are all things I'm supposed to be doing. But none of that is good enough. That is the only thing to trust in. And Jesus wants it. He wants your trust. He wants your faith. Um, I don't know if you've picked up on it. There are two things that I usually pray for, for us, especially Sunday morning, that, that distractions would be removed and that we would hear from the Lord. But I end my, most of my prayers the same as well. I say, we love you and we trust you. Because to me, those are two different things. They can be intertwined. I got people that I know that I love, but I don't trust them. Most of those are people in my past. People I love, but I don't trust. Those are not necessarily the same thing. And I purposely try to lead us into that, that we love God, but we trust him also. Trust him.